Well, good morning. Uh, hey, I don't know if you uh, if this has stood out to you or if you've been tracking, but this is the 14th week uh, in which the gospel text for the morning uh, has come from the gospel of Luke. You, I don't know if you would be aware of this or not, but that has nothing to do with my design or Amy's design. It's simply a fact of following the lectionary. And again, I don't actually know like what everyone's familiarity with the lectionary might be, but the lectionary is a three-year cycle of readings throughout all of Scripture. And in the lectionary for Sundays, there's always an Old Testament text, there's always a psalm, there's always a reading from the epistle, and there's always a gospel reading. And in year A of the lectionary, the gospel focus always comes from Matthew, and in year B, it always comes from Mark, and in year C, which we're in now, it always comes from Luke. And then the gospel of John is just so incredible, it kind of gets spread out through all three years. And so while Amy and I actually have, like, we don't feel bound in any way to preaching from the lectionary. One of the reasons that we tend to start there is that it helps to ensure that congregations get to hear from the full range of scripture and not just texts that individual preachers might happen to prefer, right? So when you submit to the lectionary over the course of at least three years, you're getting the whole grand sweep of the Bible. It's sort of, uh, in a way, a little bit like elementary school or getting a liberal arts education, right? That you don't just opt into the areas where you prefer or that you feel most comfortable, right? You don't just go to school and think, I'm only going to do math, right? You get to do a whole bunch of different topics and subjects. You're exposed to a full range of subjects that help you get a more well-rounded education. Well, back to the idea of preaching, it also means that sometimes you're forced to confront difficult texts that if you were just choosing on your own, you might just skip over them <laughs> or leave them aside, right? And such is our lot this morning as we come to a text in Luke 16, uh, verses 1 to 13, which if, you're looking, if you were to look in your Bibles, you would see that it's often called the parable of the shrewd manager, Luke 16. The parable of the shrewd manager. So just before I read it, I want to read you really quickly, um, I want to illustrate this point by reading to you what three different commentators that I read this week had to say about this text. Okay. Number one, the parable of the dishonest steward poses significant theological challenges, not least of which is the apparent injunction to imitate the unrighteous behavior of the main character. Secondly, none of the parables, this commentator said, none of the parables of Jesus has baffled interpreters quite like the story of the dishonest steward. And the last one, Luke 16, 1 to 13, is one of the greatest exegetical mountains of scripture. This bewildering parable and the positive use Jesus makes of its shifty protagonist may never be satisfactorily solved until faith is made sight. <laughs> these are three different commentators who are saying this particular, these verses, this parable of Jesus uh, has been a point of difficulty for commentators for years. So challenging text right, is the upshot of all that. I am going to do my best this morning to help us get some clarity where we can and offer uh, what I think some of the main takeaways are. But just so you know, if we get done and you're left with, like, more questions than answers, uh, you're going to be in really good company, okay? It's the same for a lot of people. All right, so with all that said, let me read to us our text this morning from Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? 
Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do now? My master is taking away my job. I love this. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. <laughs> I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Gave him a 50% discount. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. Not 50, but 20% discount, still something. The master, commended, the, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we don't, unfortunately can't do this morning as like an extended Bible study on this parable, interesting as that would be. What we can do, what I want to do, is look at the last few verses in which either Jesus or Luke, that's just one of the things that isn't super clear in this passage. At the end of it, who's actually saying these things? Is it sort of like, Jesus actually saying them, or is it Luke's commentary in the gospel on those passages? We're not entirely sure. What we can look at those things uh, and how they're offering us takeaways or lessons from the story, and there's at least three. The first one comes in verses 8 and 9 where we read this. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be wel welcomed into eternal dwellings. So here, I think what Jesus is essentially saying, Jesus or Luke, or what the gospel is telling us, is that we live in a world, actually, where people are constantly working and maneuvering to try and ensure that things are going to go well for them. Right? This is just the nature of the world that we live in. You'd kind of be silly not to look around and think that people are doing their absolute best to make sure playing angles, working, working the things, right, to make sure that things go well for them. But they're doing so, Jesus would have us know, based on an incomplete or a misguided view of the world, without a knowledge of what is of ultimate value and significance. So the question I think that comes back to us is how much more ought we, as followers of Jesus, who has shown us who God is, and what life in his kingdom is all about, how much more should you and I strive to be just as thoughtful and cunning with those things in mind? Like if we are following Jesus and we believe that he has revealed to us the truth about the world that we live in, the truth about who God is and what life in his kingdom is like, how much more should we be as crafty and cunning and shrewd? 
as this dishonest manager. I want to read, this is how Eugene Peterson in the message translates those verses that I just read, just a couple of verses. Um, I like how he does this. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They're on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. Here's how he translates Jesus' message to us. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival. To concentrate your attention on the bare essentials. So that you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. I love, I love what he says there, especially when he says, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival. We might think of it like this. That because God is actually so very unlike the rich man in this parable, because of his kindness and his mercy, his generosity, those things ought to enable us, you and I, to be creatively faithful with all of the circumstances of our life. So this is one of the key things to get in the parable. What Jesus is not doing is saying, God is like this rich man. What we're actually supposed to take away is like, God is demonstrably not like this rich man. God is wholly different. He's not trying to weasel people out of their money. He's not trying to take advantage of people, you or I. God is compassionate and kind and merciful and generous. And because he is, that ought to enable you and I to live, to be creatively faithful in all the circumstances of our life. Jesus then says to his disciples, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And I just want to say, I think this is a really good question for us this morning, church, to ask ourselves, what might it mean for us to be creatively faithful in using our various assets and resources to gain friends for ourselves? What would that mean for us as a church? What would it mean for you as a follower of Jesus? Because here's the reality, since absolutely not one of us can take any money or possessions with us to heaven, the very best thing we could do with it is actually leverage it, leverage money and resources and assets, leverage those things toward relationships and work that is going to outlive us and to bless others for generations to come. It's one of the main takeaways, I think, one of the lessons from this parable, maybe the most important for us this morning. But here's the second. In verses 10 to 12, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to entrust you with true riches? Those would be spiritual riches, the things of the kingdom. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? I actually think this part of the parable, this part of the teaching, is probably the part that's maybe most plain to us or most intuitive that we sort of instinctually get, that you always want to see if you can trust someone with something small before you see if you can trust them with something big. That's just kind of common sense wisdom, right? But I want us to be sure that we see something that's sort of like going on beneath the surface of that plain uh, lesson. 
It's that the point isn't just about responsibility that's either small or big. The point is about the fundamental instincts of the one who bears whatever responsibility might be. What you're ultimately trying to figure out is not, is this person capable, what God's trying to figure out with us is not, is this person capable of doing big things? The test is really like, is this person actually, is there, are their instincts to, turned towards being faithful? I was thinking about this concept in particular as I was, um, Aubrey's really gotten into running recently. You know, we live just a couple blocks from Malone and she's always asking, hey, can we go over to Malone track and run? So we went over there the other night um, and I was thinking like, this dynamic is kind of at play. Like ultimately, I think she wants to run some longer distances, but we're starting out with like, well, how do you run your first lap, right? You gotta run a lap before you can run a mile. But I noticed like what I'm actually doing in that time with her is I'm trying to figure out if she understands what it means to pace herself. Because if she knows how to pace herself for a lap, then I know that she's gonna figure out, it doesn't matter if she wants to run five miles or 10 or 100. What really matters is, do you know how to pace yourself? And so the issue isn't really small or big. The issue is, do you know how to do a task faithfully? And in the course of running, pacing is everything. You gotta figure out how you're able to pace yourself. So whatever else is going on in this parable, I really think that one of the main things that Jesus wants us to see, what he's inviting us to recognize, is that he, in, in, he desires to entrust you and I with things that are of eternal significance. Like that's actually God's desire and design for us, that he wants to entrust us with things that are of eternal significance. He longs for you and I to function not as managers, but as co-owners along with him in the stewardship of the kingdom. That all of the riches and the resources of God's world are at his disposal. And he says to you and I, again, this is a contrast with the parable. I have no desire for you to be a manager. I actually want to give you eternal heavenly kingdom property. <laughs> and I want you to be a co-owner with me in the stewardship of those things. Here's what I think is the last sort of takeaway, uh, this last lesson in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, being uh, myself a fairly um, all-or-nothing kind of person, I confess that I really appreciate Jesus' clarity here. Like, he just straight on with a point that he's making in his parable. We have to pick. Are we going to base our lives on a pursuit of God and everything that he promises? Or are we going to base our lives on the pursuit of money and everything that it says it promises? In the mind of Jesus, there's no such thing as essentially like, well, I just sort of like live my normal life and I have a religious zone over here where I think about God and I do religious activities. But the rest of my life is mine and I can feel really good about tacking on spiritual things, incorporating them into that life as well. Like that's just not how Jesus thinks about life. It's not how he thinks about discipleship. It's not how he wants us to think about life in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying this, like he's laying it down the way that he is, not to be strict, 
or dictatorial. Those things don't exist in the person of Jesus. He says this because it's simply a statement of fact. It's like he's saying, you can't walk forward and backward at the same time. Like, it's not an ultimatum. He's just telling you. He's telling us. These things are incompatible. You have to choose one or the other. You really just can't do them at the same time. And the reason is because they are strictly opposed to one another as sources of identity and status and influence and security. And this is something that we universally, every single person who's ever been created in the image of God, longs for, craves, seeks, and desires these things. Identity, status, influence, and security. And we're either going to find those things in God and the kingdom that he invites us to, or we're going to try to find those things in the God of this world, which is mammon and money and wealth. Our lives are either shaped by the person of God, the ways of Jesus, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, or they're shaped by the power of money and the pursuit of wealth and the ability to accumulate for ourselves and make ourselves feel safe and secure. And while money promises freedom, but actually ends up enslaving us, submitting ourselves to Christ as our master actually brings freedom in its truest forms. So whereas the shrewd manager, this is sort of trying to encapsulate this into one sort of idea, whereas the shrewd manager used worldly wealth to save himself, that's what he did, right? He knew what he had access to, and he knew he had access to these people, and he was on his way out the door, but no one else knew that yet, and he used worldly wealth to save himself. I know what I'll do. I don't want to work, and I don't want to beg, so I'm going to take advantage of my situation to save myself. What Christ does, what Jesus does, Christ invites us to find in him a wealth that is beyond all measure. Christ is our treasure. Christ is our hope. Christ is our salvation. He is the salvation that we could never secure on our own. We can't. <laughs> it's all a gift. So confusing as parts of that parable might be, I just want to say to you this morning, I think that like these are pretty simple takeaways that hopefully are straightforward enough for us to reflect and chew on this morning. I'll just sum them up one more time. First, that there is no one single right way to steward what God has entrusted to us. The goodness of God, His generosity, frees us to be creatively faithful in all the circumstances of our lives. What an interesting question, right? That in whatever is going on in your own life, in your life as a couple, in your life as a family, in your life in a neighborhood, or for our life as a church, for us to say, God has actually freed us to think, how can we be creatively faithful in the situation in which we find ourselves in. Second, that God is far more interested in how we approach spiritual responsibility than the size of whatever that spiritual responsibility is. What God is keenly interested in is like, what's our posture, our disposition, the character with which we engage spiritual responsibility? And thirdly, money is not evil, but neither is it neutral. 
Money is not evil, but neither is it neutral. We live in a world where money can become, often does become, a rival master to God. It's just the world that we live in. But only God can deliver and save us in the ways that money pretends to. So hopefully you get here, like this isn't like a neat, tidy, you see how the parable is working? Like Jesus is telling this story, and then he's got this like list of lessons or takeaways. Um, So it's kind of like a bunch of sermons in one, in terms of how Jesus and Luke are using the parable this morning. So as Jim mentioned this morning, uh, next week we're going to be gathering for a special service of healing and hope. Right after that we'll be launching into an eight-week study in the book of Acts together which means we, we won't be coming back to Luke. That eight-week study will take us up to Advent, and then we'll be in year A again in terms of the lectionary. But since Luke and Acts go together, I think everyone probably knows this, right? It's kind of like a two-volume set that Luke wrote, Luke and the book of Acts. Since they go together, what I wanted to do is conclude this morning by drawing our attention just to one last thing. In the final chapter of Luke's gospel, he tells this story about two disciples, you guys know this, on the road to Emmaus. Luke is the only gospel writer to include this story. So it kind of makes sense for us just to ask what he might have had in mind when he was doing that. It's not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke, or it is in Luke, but not in John. So let me read this. This is going to be a familiar story. Again, I want to read it from the message this morning just for the sake of variety and for how it draws some things out. I don't want you to look at this in a Bible. It's not up on the screen. I just kind of want you to, like, take the story in as I read it this morning. That same day, two of them were walking to the village of Maus, about seven miles out of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all the things that had happened. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked with them, but they weren't able to recognize who he was. And he asked, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? And they just stood there, long-faced, like they had lost their best friend. And then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what happened during the last few days? He said, what has happened? And they said, the things, the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and deed, blessed by both God and the people. Then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death, and crucified him. We had our hopes up that he was the one, the one who was about to deliver Israel. And now it's the third day since it happened. But some of our own women have completely confused us. Early this morning, they were at the tomb and they couldn't find his body. They came back with the story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and found it empty, just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. And then he said to them, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen? That the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? And then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. They came to the edge of the village where they were headed. He acted as if he was going on ahead, but they pressed him, stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is gone. So he went in with them 
And here's what happened. He sat down at the table with them, taking the bread he blessed and broke and gave it to them. And at that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized him. And then he disappeared. Back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road and he opened up the scriptures to us? They didn't waste a minute. They were up and on their way back to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and their friends gathered together, talking away. It's really happened. The master has been raised. Simon saw him. Then the two went over everything that had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. I wonder why Luke chose to use that story as the conclusion, or at least part of the conclusion to his, the whole narrative of the gospel, his gospel account. I know that that story, and I know that the walk of, the walk to Emmaus experience has been, has held an important place in the life of many in this congregation. And over the last few years, as I've listened to others share stories about their experience of the walk to Emmaus and all that that included, I know that it has served as an invitation to discipleship and renewal in people's lives and in the life of this church. I actually think that this is probably part of what Luke had in mind and why he included that story in the end of his gospel, these ideas of discipleship on the road and renewal and new things happening. Maybe it's especially the way, in terms of what he probably had in mind, that he was going to chronicle in the book of Acts. Like, I wonder about that link for Luke, that he's like, I'm setting something up here. You're really going to have to understand what I'm doing in the book of Acts. I got to include this story at the end of the gospel so that you understand something. And I think I see this story as issuing two calls to its first readers and to you and I today. One, a call to walk openly. A call to walk openly. And second, a call to listen intently. A call to listen intently. So yes, the disciples were dejected and confused in the wake of Jesus' death, but they were still walking and talking with a certain sense of openness. And their walking openly created the opportunity for Jesus to come among them. I mean, imagine if they hadn't and what they would have missed. But they invited him in and then they listened intently to this stranger among them that they didn't know who he was, but they listened intently to him and what he was saying and what he was teaching. They listened to him as he shared from the scriptures and they listened to him as he broke bread and gave it to them at the table. And in their listening, they came to see him for who he was. The resurrected Jesus right in their midst. So friends, I, I just offer those things as we, as like a capstone to our time in Luke and a bridge over into our time in Acts and say, as we come together next week for this special service of healing and hope, may we too walk openly. May we too walk openly that we might welcome Jesus into our midst. And as, then we, as we open the scriptures together in the book of Acts in the coming weeks, may we listen intently to one another 
and to what the Holy Spirit may want to say to us as we open the scriptures together, that we might come to recognize, as those disciples did, the resurrected Jesus and where he is leading us. Amen? Amen.